I'll invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We're nearing the end of Matthew's gospel, and today we'll be looking at the death of Jesus the King, the death of Jesus the King in Matthew 27 verses 32 through 66. As we consider Jesus' death, we'll see this central truth that Jesus' death means God will never abandon his children. Jesus' death means God will never abandon his children. His death brings us access and hope. So we'll begin reading today in Matthew 27, verse 32, and for now we'll read down through verse 44. Matthew 27, 32, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. The summer of 1996, Ann Arbor, Michigan, found itself in a situation not unlike many we've seen in recent weeks in our nation. A chapter of the Ku Klux Klan in Michigan planned a rally there. And when the news of this rally spread, members of the community planned a protest. Now, as you know, events like this can be very emotionally charged. And so the authorities erected, erected a fence, and kind of on one side were supposed to be the, the protesters, and on the other side was supposed to be the Klan members. But what, as this happened, and as people were marching, shouting, protesting, suddenly someone spotted among the protesters a man with a rebel flag and an SS tattoo and said, there's a KKK member here. Shouted over the bullhorn. Well, when that happened, the crowd began shouting, turned, began beating and kicking this man. But this moment is noted and has come down to us through history because of this photograph. Now, the young lady in this photograph is only 18 years old. Her name is Kashia Thomas. But in this moment, she's there with the protesters, and there's a man there who hates her and is protesting her very existence. But when the crowd turned and began beating this man, she threw herself on top of him and pleaded with the crowd to stop. The, the quote that, that kind of has passed down and been remembered is, you can't beat goodness into a person. Gashia Thomas that day literally placed herself in front of this man to spare him the anger of the crowd. And in a much greater way, 
What we see here today in the life of Christ is him placing himself in front of those who should receive punishment and speaking up for the very people who are hurling insults and abuse on him. Abuse. And sacrifices himself for those who are abusing him. Today we have the death of the king. Jesus is a crucified king. Now kings are powerful people. But in this moment, Jesus manifests willing weakness. We see the king's weakness. Now, he's been through torture and beating already, multiple times. He's been stripped naked multiple times. He's been kept up all night. By the time he's let out to die, he's very weak. In a literal sense, to die by crucifixion is to die of shame. You see, you were required to carry your own cross, as you know. A cross is two beams, a vertical beam and a horizontal beam. The vertical beam was often placed in the ground, kind of like a post, waiting, but, but the prisoner was required to carry his own cross beam. Sort of like digging your own grave. You literally carried your shame to the place of execution. Jesus is so weakened that a man from the crowd is grabbed, and, and the text says that he's compelled to carry the cross. This word compelled is a word that literally means placed into servitude or slavery. It was something that was legal for Romans to do is grab someone and compel them, bind them, and require them to compel them to, uh, to this forced labor. This man, Simon of Cyrene, modern-day Libya, carries the cross, this beam of shame. Now, we don't know a lot about Simon. We know where he's from, and Mark tells us that he has two sons, Rufus and Alexander. Now, we likely knew that at some point, Simon and his sons became followers of Christ because Romans chapter 16 tells us that in the church at Rome, there's a man named Rufus, and it's likely that this is Simon's son. Now, Jews and Romans both require that execution take place not within city limits, but outside the city. So Jesus is led to a nearby hill called Golgotha, which as our text says means skull. Now, this word Golgotha has been passed down to us through Latin translations of the Bible, through the word calvus. Well, if you think through what we know, it's the hill called Calvary, which means scalp. Wine mixed with Myrrh is an early painkiller. When Jesus gets there, they offer this to him, and he re rejects this opportunity to ease his suffering. Now, Roman executioners, the, the execution squad, is allowed to split the belongings of the condemned. So in verse 35, the soldiers split up his stuff, as David had prophesied in Psalm 22, the psalm we read the beginning of earlier. And all of this, all of this happens before 9 in the morning. Now, the Jewish day starts at 6 a.m. That's the first hour. The 9, nine o'clock hour is the third hour of the day. Mark's gospel tells us this third hour, 9 o'clock a.m., is roughly when Jesus is crucified. After being beaten, flogged, stripped naked, placed on a cross beam, the prisoner would either be tied to this cross beam or nailed. Now, don't think nails, eight penny or 16 penny nails to build a house. These are more like railroad spikes, six or seven inch long nails that are driven into his flesh to hold him to this beam. 
After he's nailed to the beam, the beam is placed upon the post and Jesus hangs there. There's a platform nailed to this where he can place his feet and with just enough effort he can lift himself up and can, be, can, be, can allow himself to breathe. You see, crucifixion is a long, agonizing death. Often prisoners would take days to die. It was ultimately death by asphyxiation or suffocation because you, couldn't, you no longer had the energy to lift yourself up. And so Jesus hangs there to die a death by exhaustion. But he doesn't hang alone. The king has a court. On either side of Jesus are two prisoners. These prisoners justly condemned under the law. Jesus himself, the innocent, hangs there condemned alongside the guilty. All the respectable people have fled. The rest of the people there Verse 39 tells us our mockers, those who passed by, derided him, wagging their heads. To die naked on a cross is a shameful death. Now, the physical agony that Jesus endures is immense. But interestingly, each of the gospel writers focuses not so much on the physical torture as the disgrace that Jesus endures. The shame and the mocking. Jesus dies a death of shame. Verse 37 introduces us to the mockery that he endures. This naked, bloody man has a sign hung on the cross, King of the Jews. Now we know that Pilate writes this message in three different languages so everyone can understand what's going on here. He himself is in on the joke. If you've ever traveled to um, any early American town squares, I've seen this in Williamsburg, Virginia, they have in the center of the square stocks. Now stocks are wooden implements to keep someone immobile. You kind of stick your hand, your hands and, and, and your head through and you're, and you're held there. What's the point of stocks? It's, it's punishment by public shaming. Is that people can walk by and throw things at you or mock you publicly. Well, crucifixion combines the physical torture of the worst death with with public shaming. Jesus endures the most humiliating public shaming ever. Verse 39 tells us that as people pass by, they literally blaspheme him. Now, the religious leaders are not going to miss their opportunity to mock him either. Verse 41, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. If God wants him, Let God come and get him. If you're the son of God, come on down. Then we'll believe. Jesus is so disgraced that even those who are dying with him mock him to scorn. Imagine this. These condemned prisoners have hours themselves, yes, left to live. And they spend their last hours literally heaping insults, piling on, the text says. They join everyone else. They're dying in shame, but everyone there is mocking one man, the king, Jesus. Today's world, if you say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, you can be shamed out of culture, out of business, without any hope of redemption or forgiveness. Ours is a condemnation culture. A shame culture, not a culture of redemption. So we fear shame almost more than anything else. In fact, some of us walk through life, regardless of what culture says, with imposter syndrome. 
afraid that if people really knew us, if people really knew who we were, they, they, they wouldn't like us. They wouldn't accept us. If they, if they really knew, they would reject us. Yet in a world that fears shame, Jesus willingly bears shame. The shameless is shamed for the shameful. So you walk through a scripture, there's a particular imagery that we see over and over and over again. It's the imagery of a robe. See, what do clothes do for us? They cover our shame. If we were all sitting here fully exposed to the world, it would be a rather different feeling this morning. And yet what we have is that Jesus comes and he clothes us. Because of the eyes of God, all things are naked and exposed. He sees us as we are. He knows our innermost secrets. He knows our darkest thoughts. He knows the worst parts of us. And Jesus comes, and what's happening here in this moment is this visible physical shame on the cross represents what's happening happening spiritually. Jesus is bearing our shame. The insults that are being hurled at Jesus, we deserve. The agony that Jesus endures, we deserve. The punishment that's inflicted on him is our punishment. It's our sin that holds Jesus to the cross. And what do we get in in exchange? The robe of Jesus' righteousness, the robe of Jesus' glory. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 tells us that for our sake, he became sin for us so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. He becomes sin so that we might have God's righteousness placed on our account, robed around us. We get honor. Jesus gets the shame. We don't need to fear shame if we know Jesus. Because no matter who else rejects us, no matter what level of scorn we receive, Ephesians 1 tells us that God has made us through Christ accepted in the Beloved. Romans 8 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So don't fear the shame. It's a well-known children's story, The Emperor's New Clothes. You know this story where supposedly this tailor crafts him a new set of clothes and he walks through town wearing his new clothes, but there are no clothes on this emperor. He's naked. And a little boy points it out. He's not wearing any clothes and everyone begins to laugh and mock. The joke is, We're all that emperor. The truth is, we're all the ones exposed, not necessarily to the people around us, but certainly to the God who made us. But we don't need to fear the shame if we know Christ. Parents walk through lives, walk through life, literally spending their lives to serve their children. Yet as they do this, they know they're going to make missteps along the way. And one day, as their kids age, their kids are going to look at them and say, you messed up. And the difficult thing about that moment is, as a parent, what? They're right. You're not going to make it through 18 years of life and do it all right. You're just not. And so when your son or your daughter says, dad, you messed up, mom, you messed up, there's a part of you that knows that this is true. Kids experience it in a different way. I mean, what do our kids fear worse than anything else? Rejection. Maybe from mom and dad, certainly from friends. I mean, what's, what's the most agonizing thing you can experience the day at school? 
rejection by the people you want to accept you. And so how is it that people that fear these things walk through life, they run to Christ and know that even if everyone else rejects them, Jesus will accept them. All we have to do is come to him in faith. The king also has a throne. Three times, verses 11, 29, and 37, Jesus is called the king of the Jews. Verse 42, the king of Israel. Now, in every case, the people who are calling Jesus the king don't really mean it. But ironically, they are labeling Jesus with the truth. Jesus is the king. The king ascends to the throne, not to rule, but to die in behalf of the people. In this case, the throne is a cross, and the king is dying on this cross. The king is high and lifted up yet mocked. And it's this moment of shame and death that means the king will win his full victory over his greatest enemies. Ironically, the seemingly greatest defeat leads to the greatest good. The Jews mock Jesus and demand that he come down to prove that he is the son of God. Yet ironically, it's because Jesus is the son of God that he will not come down. He could come down, but he does not. The cross of shame is a throne of glory because it it guarantees the victory of the king. And because Jesus humbled himself, Philippians 2 declares, God has highly exalted him. And at his name, every knee will bow. The moment of the greatest shame produces the highest glory. All of this shame brings us to the death of Jesus in verses 45 through 56. Let's pick up reading in verse 45. Jesus hangs on the cross, and in verse 45, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Well, if you've been tracking our first century clock, you know that the sixth hour is noon. So from the sixth to the ninth hour is noon to three o'clock in the afternoon brightest part of the day. At this time of day, when it should be brightest, it goes pitch black. Now this judgment, this same kind of judgment is foreshadowed in the book of Exodus. The 10th plague, the plague that leads to the Passover, 
For three days it goes dark in the land of Egypt as a sign of God's judgment. And this also is a moment of judgment and grief as God's curse hangs over the land of Israel. Have you ever been in a place so dark that you could feel the darkness? I don't mean see the darkness, I mean feel it. I haven't often, but I can remember one time I was deep in a cavern in Tennessee. It turned out the lights, thankfully we had lights. And the darkness, it was like it draped over you. Like you could feel it. And in this moment, there is no light. And around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus is an abandoned king. His death means abandonment for him. And in this darkest moment in history, God is absent. Have you ever gone through a moment that felt so dark, so lonely, so terrible, and been tempted to ask, God, are you there? Where is God in this? When the world around us seems to crumble and people pursue their own desires and pursue sin in new and unusual ways, are you ever tempted to ask, God, where are you? When the child that you prayed for, wept for, is gone, before you ever had a chance to even meet that child and hold her in your arms, and you wept with an agony like you have never imagined, and you experience a hole that you know will never be filled, where is God? In that moment. When your whole life you'd had hopes and dreams and you meet the person you think is the man of your dreams. Only to realize that he's not who he said he was. And now you find yourself locked. Locked in a relationship and there's no way out. And you find yourself ashamed and hopeless. Where is God in that moment? So where is God? Keep that question in mind. We'll come back to it. For the first and only time in all eternity, the Son of God cries out to the Father, God, where are you? And is met with silence. The son is abandoned. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the father doesn't answer. Because crucifixion is such a long and agonizing way to die. Criminals often over the period of hours and days screamed and yelled in agony. Jesus quotes again from Psalm 22. David the king cries out to God in Psalm 22. He is a righteous person suffering unjustly. And here Jesus, the righteous king, again is suffering unjustly and he cries out with those same words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me here? God, where are you? Jesus horror in the garden. He looked forward to this moment. He wept and he pled, God, don't lead me down this road. It has come to fruition. Abandoned by his friends already, he is now abandoned by God himself. The only thing with Jesus in this moment is the horror of our sin. All the shame, all the guilt, all the condemnation, that is Jesus' company in this moment. All the darkness, it's all there, and it's all Jesus has. There's no light, just a dark tunnel. 
Verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. This takes place at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the same time that Passover lambs are slaughtered. Jesus, hours before, celebrated the Passover with his disciples, and he is now the new Passover and dies at the very moment when the Passover lambs are slaughtered, indicating that no longer need there be any other sacrifice for sin. His is the full and final sacrifice sufficient for the sins of the world. Jesus' death means abandonment for him, but access for us. Jesus was abandoned so that we might come boldly before God's throne. In this moment of darkness, there are signs of hope. Verse 51, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God tore this curtain. No human being could tear this curtain from top to bottom. For centuries, God's presence has been a thing to fear. The holy of holies, the most holy place, has been a place where no one could go. The day, the one day of atonement where the priest would enter that place was the day the the priest would face with dread, making sure he's completely clean because if he enters that place with, with any ounce of contamination, he would be struck dead. People almost never got to go into God's presence. There's a curtain, a thick curtain, demonstrating that you shouldn't go in. In fact, there are two curtains here, one in the holy place and one in the most holy place, so you really, really didn't get in the wrong place. But in this moment, the moment Jesus cries out, everything changes. Jesus approaches this moment with dread so that we might approach God's presence with boldness, with confidence. Jesus plunged through the curtain of death and found no help. So that when we plunge the curtain into God's presence, we will always find help in the time of our need. Hebrews promises this in Hebrews chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Let us then with boldness draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Imagine, before the death of Christ, that there's a rogue Jew running through the temple court and you know he's gone insane and he's heading into the most holy place. What would you do? You'd do everything you could to stop him because it would save his life. But now Jesus has plunged through this curtain and we don't need to fear the presence of God because Jesus experienced God's ultimate rejection. God the Father rejected his own son so that he will never reject you. We can enter God's presence boldly Confidently, this was impossible before. Matthew chapter 3, at Jesus' baptism, the heavens were torn open. And the presence of God through the Spirit of God fell on Jesus the Son. Now at the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 27, Jesus' presence tears open those very same curtains and we can boldly enter God's presence ourselves. Jesus' death means hope for everyone. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. But Paul goes on to say, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And all of this is foreshadowed. The the resurrection is coming. But there's an earthquake in verse 51. And then in verse 52, the tombs are opened and many bodies who had fallen asleep were raised. 
the powerful nature of Jesus' sacrifice opens access to God and foreshadows what's going to happen just a couple of days later. Verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him saw what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus' friends, (laughs) they are gone. Only ones within shouting distance are a group of women in verse 55. Jesus' friends gone, and then this pagan soldier sees what every other person misses. Jesus is the Son of God. Son of God is a remarkably weighty title in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 14, Jesus walks on the water, calms the sea. And his disciples confess that he's the Son of God. But here in this moment, it's a pagan centurion who sees that Jesus, the king, is God. This moves us from Jesus' death to the burial of the king in verses 57 through 66. Let's pick up, we will read there. Matthew 27, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, We remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I'll rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go. Make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, if you want to know about preparing a body for burial, Jim Thompson can tell you a lot more about that than I can. But in verse 57, we find a rich man named Joseph offering his tomb to bury Jesus. Jesus experiences care in death. Well, the Jewish Sabbath, as you know, is Saturday. So Friday, the day of preparation, they have to get him buried that day. And so what's done is done pretty quickly. Normally, you'd embalm the body with spices, but they wrap him quickly and stick him in this tomb, this cave. Jesus would have to be buried that day or hang until Sunday. Well, because the point of crucifixion is to warn others against committing crimes against Rome, they'd allow the bodies to rot on the cross unless... A close friend or family member requested the body. We don't know a lot about Joseph. He's from Arimathea. We also know that he's a respected member of the council, the Sanhedrin, the 71-member body that rules Israel, also responsible for condemning Jesus to death. But Matthew tells us that in addition to all these other things, he is a disciple of Jesus. He's part of a bad crowd, but he follows Jesus. So Joseph gives Jesus a quick and honorable burial. Couldn't anoint it like normal because the Sabbath is coming. Verse 60, a great stone is rolled against the entrance and the stage is set. 
for all of God's prophecies to come true. So there's this big picture of redemption going on here. But one thing that stands out in this section of Matthew is how God uses ordinary people to accomplish his work. Joseph of Arimathea was rich, but he's not famous. We wouldn't know who he is apart from this moment. I mean, Simon of Cyrene, why do we know him? Because he carried the cross. Women standing around, and yet God uses these ordinary people, some of whom are full of fear, all of whom are full of failings, and he brings about his will. You see, God doesn't excuse our failures, but somehow remarkably, because he's God, he can use our failures and still accomplish his will. And he most often uses ordinary people and human weakness to bring about his will. God uses failing, unremarkable, ordinary people. Well, in this moment, the Jewish leaders are afraid, and so they ask for the tomb to be secured. Security. Now, what is security? I mean, these leaders never stop. In verses 62 to 64, they say the disciples might steal the body. And I think verse 65 has one of the most ironically humorous lines in all the Bible. And it's, it's Pilate who says it. He says, all right, you're worried? Fine. Go make it as secure as you can. They could have piled a thousand giant rocks in front of this entrance. They could hire 10,000 soldiers to guard the tomb, and it couldn't stop what's happening next. It's still Friday, but even on Friday, Sunday is coming. There's darkness in the land, but the centurion sees. Jesus is abandoned, but he opens the way to God. Jesus is separated from the Father himself, but he's opened the way for us. Adam and Eve started inside the garden and were cast out with a curse. Jesus willingly left inside God's presence and came to bear the curse for us. He completely reverses the curse of the fall. Several minutes ago, we asked the question, where is God in those moments when he seems to be absent? This moment, this cross is a reminder that God abandoned his son, so he will never abandon us. Jesus went through utter shame, complete rejection. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that when we cry out, God, where are you? We can know that God is there. God tells us he will never leave us or forsake us. Has he not said, Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you? How can this be true when we still experience all that we experience? Well, Paul's words in Romans 8 tell us that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us some things, a few things, all things? If he didn't spare his only son, we can trust that God will be there In that moment, we look around and we feel that God is not there. We know that God does not abandon us because he has given his son for us. Isaiah 53 verse 10 tells us that it pleased the Lord to crush his son. How can this be? Is this because God is some sort of sadistic torturer? No. It's mercy. Mercy moved the father to crush his son under the judgment of sin so that we might have life through him. It was God's will to crush Jesus 
so that we will not be crushed under the weight of our sin. Because Jesus could bear this burden, we cannot. We will be crushed eternally under the weight of our sin unless we turn to Jesus and trust him. In a crowd this size, there's no doubt that there may be people who hear the words, but don't yet personally know the truth that Jesus died for your sins. Would you turn from your sin and trust Jesus, the one who bore God's sin, God's judgment, God's wrath, so that we won't have to? Would you trust Jesus today? Let's take a moment now, respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God, respond personally in your seat, and then I'll close this in prayer. Let's talk to him now.